John chapter 11, let's pray, and then we'll see how the Lord wants to minister to us today. Father, uh, here we are, Lord, once again, another gathering uh, of your people, called out ones, Lord, called to be separate, called to be different. We're in the world, Lord. We don't fit in the world. Uh, I pray that we don't fit in the world. We're not supposed to. This world is not our home. We don't expect to live here eternally. Uh, Lord, we're just uh, serving you, making use of every opportunity while we're here to let people know uh, who you are, what you've done, and, and encourage them to believe for themselves and see the impact you can have in their lives as well. So, Lord, uh, we need strength to do this. We need knowledge to do this. We need your spirit to do this. So, Lord, as we open up your word, I pray you just minister to us, that you build us up, that you make us more confident, that you fill us with faith so that we can be useful to you, Lord. Baptize us fresh today with your Holy Spirit. Make us useful witnesses for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Open our eyes to see wondrous things from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. John chapter 11 is where we are. We'll make our way down through John chapter 12, verse 8 or so, if we get moving here. So, uh, we, John chapter 11 is about midway through the Gospel of John. If you've been coming around here, as we've been going verse by verse and chapter by chapter, you know John wrote so that people would believe. So he carefully selected uh, of, of all of the things that Jesus did. He did so many things, they, they couldn't be contained in, in a single volume book. So John was very careful to select things that would contribute to what he was trying to communicate with the people in his day as well as us. And so he included uh, miracles. He included statements that Jesus made, seven, seven miracles, seven I am statements. And last week we read, as, as John included, the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead and Jesus making the... Uh, unthinkable, phenomenal statement that if it wasn't true, it it would be ludicrous. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And what a statement to make. And and then asking the question, as Phil made reference to, to, to Martha, do you believe this? And it's a great question, a great question that we all have to uh, consider. Do you believe this? What do you think happens when you die? What do you think happens? Is there an eternity or not? And you have to decide those things. I know what Jesus said, and I kind of trust him. So I'm going with him because I don't know. Nobody knows for sure. Jesus is the only one that's been there and come back to really tell us uh, all about it. It's amazing. There's a, there's a real run on um, and a real interest right now. Any of you, if you've been to the Christian bookstore lately, you'll notice there's a real run on books that have to do with near-death experiences, Right? Have you seen those at the Christian bookstore? How many of you read Heaven is for Real? We've got one right there. How many of you have read Heaven is for Real? All right. How many have read 90 Minutes in Heaven? Anybody read uh, Proof of Heaven? That's uh, not a Christian book necessarily. But So here we're all reading these. Why are we reading these books? Because we're interested. Because we have this question of is it really real? You know, do we really know what happens afterwards? And I'm telling you, Jesus died. And he rose again. And he was seen by f- over 500 people at one time. And, and there's so much proof of all of that. That's the proof of heaven right there. Jesus Christ 
is no longer in the grave. He is alive. And that gives me assurance. Do I understand it? No way. Not even close. Can I measure it scientifically? Uh Uh-uh. But do I believe it? You bet I do. I'm not sure I have a choice. I'm not sure you have a choice. So this is what, uh, where we just came from. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Uh, Jesus calls him from the grave. Lazarus, come forth. And, and there's this dramatic pause, I can imagine, as, as Lazarus makes his way uh, bound in the grave clothes out of the tomb. Verse 45 is where we pick it up in chapter 11. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. Uh, that would be... Uh, a fairly reasonable response, right? You see some guy who's been dead for four days and he comes out of the grave. You go, yeah, I'm believing in that. You know, that's, that's not a coincidence. That's, that's, a, that's a miracle. But look at what verse, verse 46 says. But some of them went away to the Pharisees. Those are the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They went to them and told them the things Jesus did. That they were already having problems with Jesus. They were already envious of him. Jesus had a very popular ministry uh, in, some, in some ways. And, and during his time he was ministering, many did follow him. And he did a, a awesome miracles. And that kind of really bothered the Pharisees. So these guys come and they tell what Jesus is doing. And now, now they, they put their heads together and they have a block party here. Verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council. And said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both, notice, our place and nation. So a few things we have to recognize. Uh, Jesus is, is, they even admit, he's doing many signs, many miracles. I mean, they're even admitting that. And they say, what should we do? I'm thinking you should believe it. That's what that's kind of the first thing that comes to mind for me. But that's not what comes to mind for them. They perceive Jesus as a problem. They perceive Jesus as a troublemaker. And so the, now the chief priests are, are from a, a political party or a group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the wealthy. They were the aristocracy. And the chief priests... At, in the, in the time of the Old Testament, to become a chief priest, you had to be born into the family. It wasn't a, a position that was elected. It, you, you, were, you could trace your family heritage all the way back to Aaron in the Old Testament, Moses and Aaron. And that was what you had to do to be the high priest. But in this day, now the Jews are being uh, ruled over by the Romans, and they would allow that position to be sold to the highest bidder. So Caiaphas is the high priest in, in this day. He's wealthy. So who, who are going to be the ones that are going to be the high priest? Because it's a sold, a, a bought and sold position. Someone who can afford it. And it's connected to a lot of power and, and a lot of corruption. That's nothing we would understand, right? We don't understand those things in politics, do we? So this is right out of our current newspaper. You know, this, you, could, you could tell this story today without any trouble. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered a council together and said, what should we do? This man works many signs. If we, I mean, if we let him alone, everyone will believe in him. People naturally want to believe in Jesus. They really do. Children. Listen, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. He doesn't say convince them to come, push them to me. He says, let them come. Why? Because kids naturally gravitate toward Jesus. It's us. It's us. Uh, wise adults that tell them, no, no, that's not real. It's just a myth. 
and we beat out faith from them. Just get out of the way and let your kids come. A lot of parents say, well, we'll give our kids the choice to believe what they want to believe. And, and so we, we let them watch seven hours a day of television and we, and we never take them to church and never do Bible study at home. But we're going to give them the choice. I think it should be equal, don't you? I mean, they're going to watch seven hours of TV. It should be seven hours of Bible study. And who's got time for anything else? But you see, my point is we say we're going to let them choose, but they're going to choose the thing they're involved in. They're going to choose the thing they're inundated with. Get out of the way, introduce them to Jesus, and let them come. People naturally will gravitate toward Jesus as well. Except for all the things they've been told, all the doubts that have been planted in their lives. And so these guys are on the side of, hey, if we don't do something, then everyone is going to believe this is going to raise the eyebrows of the Roman government. There's going to be a, and and they're going to start, you know, worshiping this guy as king. The Romans are going to get word of it and they're going to come and they're going to not let us rule over ourselves anymore. They're going to ruin it for everybody. And what are they worried about? Are they worried about the truth? Are they worried about, is Jesus really God or not? Or are they worried about our place? See, that's what they're worried about. They're worried about their position. They're worried about what it's going to cost them if people believe in Jesus. It's good, they're going to lose some power. They're going to possibly lose their position. And that was, uh, that was why they were, they were worried. So, verse 49, And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, very this Caiaphas, this is like something out of a mafia here. Uh, Caiaphas is, is like a mob boss. He's the high priest that year, and he says to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us. Again, who are they thinking about? Themselves. That's a real problem when you make your decisions based on you. And, and, and we, we have this problem, don't we? So many things, our perspective on church, our perspective on things in our, in our lives, our perspective in family is how is this going to affect me? What is this going to do to me? Instead of choosing, as the Bible tells us, don't look out just for yourselves, but for everybody. Do what's best for everybody, not just for you. And in this case, it's, it's about them. This is what's good for us, that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. What are they worried about? They're worried about in their mind. Now, see, they don't know. They're, they're going to reject Jesus. They've justified it. They're going to try to kill him. These are the religious leaders. Do you see the hypocrisy in that? Here they are behind closed doors having this meeting, plotting how to get rid of the troublemaker when the, when the Ten Commandments clearly say thou shalt not commit murder. But they're justifying it just like you and I do. We have this sin we want to commit, so we justify it and we, we, we make it okay somehow. But it's expedient for us. Now, the very thing they're worried about by rejecting Jesus is the very thing they're going to bring upon themselves. By A.D. 70, there's some 40 years after this is taking place, uh, Rome will overthrow and, and the, the, the Jewish leadership and, and destroy Jerusalem. And uh, they will do the very thing that they were hoping to avoid through their own sin and through their own uh, conniving is the very thing that they're going to cause to happen themselves. Interesting, isn't it? Because you and I, we sit around and we think. And thinking can be a dangerous thing sometimes. We should do more praying than thinking, but that's another story. Uh, because we plan and we don't know the future. We don't understand how this event is going to affect other events. We don't see the ripples in the pond. And so we think things through 
and we worry and we fear. And so we set about to fix stuff ourselves. And have you ever tried to fix something and just made it worse? Oh, yeah, we do that. And so they're trying to fix it. And in fixing it, they're just going to make it worse. And some of you, your whole lives have been just trying to fix one problem after another and only to have that fix need another fix. Because what you fixed was broken in the first place. All they had to do was accept that Jesus was who he said he was. And Jesus would have taken care of the rest, no doubt. It's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So Caiaphas says this. He says, hey, and he doesn't know what he's he's saying it from his own standpoint. He's thinking, "Okay, if we kill Jesus. That'll solve our problem. Get rid of the troublemaker and the trouble will end. We're going we're gonna to rub him out. We're going to snuff him out, just like a mafia boss would put out a hit on somebody who's, who's a troublemaker, and, and, and then that'll be rid of our problem. That's what he thinks. What he didn't realize, what John tells us, is that he spoke prophetically. What he said was true, but not in the way he understood it would be true. Jesus would die. One man would die for the whole nation, and not just that nation only, really for the whole world. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his son. And it's true. And we think, now, now, it's very hard for us to understand how one man's action can affect the whole world. Isn't that? That's a difficult American concept. There's a man that uh, used to work for IBM years and years and years ago. And because IBM was sending uh, people all over the world... To, uh, for business dealings, he began to do research on other cultures because Americans would go to some other culture and make tremendous faux pas because we don't understand what that culture, what's acceptable in that culture. So he began to study culture, and so he could educate people that were going to this country, that country, about the, the customs, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable in that culture. And so as a result of that, he's done studies of all the nations across the world uh, that you can, you can read. Uh, he studies cultures in five different areas, and one of them is individualism. America ranks highest, 100 out of 100, on individualism. We are the most individualistic nation on the face of the earth. That taints all of our decisions, all of our understandings. It's not like that around the world. Other nations are more uh, communal in their thinking. They're not worried about being first or being best. Uh, they're worried about what's best for everybody or what works for everybody. So uh, anyway, understand that we're so individualistic makes it hard for us to understand what Romans 5 tells us. That through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. And death through sin, and that spread through the whole world. Everybody's been affected and infected by what that one man did. And, and if that's true, then it also is true that through one man and the grace of that one man and his obedient act on the cross, that many would be saved. Through one man. Now, think about David and Goliath for a second. Remember the, the two armies, the Philistine army and the Jewish army, were, were facing off. And their champion was coming out. His name was Goliath, and he's this great big guy, and he carried the big sword, and, their, and their he was their champion. He was their representative. 
And he challenged the Jews to send out their representative. And no one ever was afraid to go and face this guy. Until David shows up. Says, man, I take this guy. Our God is on our side. We can take him. You know, what are we afraid of? So David goes out to meet Goliath. David represents the Jews. See, if David wins, that whole army wins. There, only two people are going to fight. David is going to fight Goliath. And the winner of that battle determines the winner uh, of, of the, the greater battle. So no one, there's not, a, it's a pretty smart way to do things, right? I like that. Two guys, you send your best and whoever wins, you just go, oh, I guess you guys won. And David wins. And David in that way is a type of Christ. In that I never had to lift my sword. I never had to lay down my, I never had to, to be in that battle that way. Jesus fought it for me. He conquered the, the enemy's champion, death and sin, and he cut off his head. David cut off Goliath's head. And, and I get to be part of that victory because he won it for me and for you. And there's no room. See, in individual society, we want to go, well, I, you know, I'm going to do it my way. Or I need to accomplish it for myself. And it's hard for us to understand that. So Caiaphas prophesied that one man's death would save a nation. And not just that, not just that nation, not just for the Jews, but that, that that success, that victory would spread to all people throughout the world. That there would be uh, people, were, children of God that were scattered would be brought under this heading called the church. You know, in the world, there, there's really, you can boil it down to uh, there's the church and there's the world. It's two, two types of people, the church and the world. And which one are you in? Are you part of the church? Are you a child of God or not a child of God? Verse 59, oh, excuse me, 53. Then from that day on, they, the, the Sadducees, the, the leaders, plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walk, walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So we've moved from uh, the, the fall, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles uh, was mentioned by John, and then we had the Feast of Dedication, which was Hanukkah. We were in the winter, and now we're in the spring. We're, this last part of the Gospel of John uh, covers a, a one-week period. Half of the Gospel of John is dedicated to one week. And it's this week of the Passover. And it was a mandatory feast. In other words, if you lived a certain distance from Jerusalem, you had to go to celebrate. If you lived farther away, many people wanted to come and they would come and travel far to be there. And everything is being prepared and Jesus is not there. It's not time for him to die yet. So he's going to come at just the right time. They're all coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. Then they sought Jesus, verse 56 says, and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. So you get a sense it's a very tense situation. By the way, John mentioned the Passover in chapter 2, verse 13. John mentioned the Passover again in chapter 6, verse 4. This is the third Passover, so that's why we understand kind of Jesus' ministry lasted about three years. Three Passovers are mentioned by John. Gives us the time frame of, of, uh, of things that he is reporting. 
And so they're, they're waiting to seize him. They want to kill him. There's a lot of tension around this Passover. So chapter 12, verse 1 says, Finally, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to where? To Bethany. He doesn't come to Jerusalem right away. He comes to Bethany. Where, La- uh, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Now in chapter 11, when we read about Bethany, it was the town of Mary and Martha and her sister Martha. Mary was a prominent figure in Bethany. But now, who's a prominent figure? Lazarus. It, God ha- you know, the power of God has been demonstrated in Lazarus's life. And now he's become sort of iconic. I mean, people are coming to see not just Jesus. They want to see this guy. They want to hear and confirm the story is true. I mean, I, I, again, kids, people I know from college, they hear what it's Pastor Steve, you know, I'm Pastor Steve, he's just Steve. You know, we know him in college. And so they want to come. I, my roommate come down to visit me. Like, I got to see this, you know. This is the guy I knew from college, and now he's Pastor Steve. Are you kidding me? So he, the power of God working in my life, working in your life, people want to see that. It's, it's, it's unique, isn't it, when you see the, the way that God makes us stand out in the world, things he does in our lives, uh, people look at that, they notice that, and they go, wow, that's really unique. And so they come to Bethany, uh, Jesus does, with his disciples, and this is where, where Lazarus, the home of, of Mary, uh, Martha, Lazarus, also the home of a guy named Simon the leper, who had been evidently healed by Jesus. This is taking place in his house, Simon the leper's house. And we don't know that from this this uh, story of it, but it's also in Matthew uh, 26 and in Mark 14. You can read the parallel accounts of this that give us a little more information. So they're not in, in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They're in Simon the leper's house. And there, verse 2 says, they made him a supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So it seems that what they're doing is, you know, Jesus raised their brother from the dead. And now he comes back to Bethany. He's very comfortable in Bethany. He's very welcome there. There's a relationship there. And so he's safe there in some ways. I mean, Jesus is safe anywhere because he's not going to die till the cross. But you know what I'm saying, right? They, they, there's a love relationship there. Um, he is safe with them. And, uh, and he's free to move about there with them. And they want to, th- they're, they're celebrating. They would say, hey, Jesus, how can we thank you? We want to throw you a dinner. So they make a dinner. And of course, Martha is doing what Martha does best, right? She is serving. We see Martha uh, serving. And, and, and servants, look, some people say of this passage, and I want you to pay close attention to this, that there are three people, three types of Christians uh, represented by Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary represents a worshiper. Martha represents a worker, and Lazarus represents a witness. And I, and I understand that there's some truth to that. But I want to, I think that Martha, I think her service was her worship. I think sometimes the way that, sometimes cutting the grass, unloading the dishwasher for my wife, or, or doing something for the kids, those things are acts of, of worship when you serve now she's not even in her own house i appreciate people like that because sometimes we'll cook you know we have a big christmas dinner every year we do you know we we entertain people and then pretty soon someone disappears from the table and you go where are they oh they're in the kitchen doing the dishes like you don't even live here and you're doing dishes in our house get away give me that and i feel bad but they're like no 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 love to do it you know 
And I appreciate that. And that's a way, I think that's worship, isn't it? We, worship isn't just singing and, and that. what you do. What the Bible says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. The Bible says, present your, your, your body as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable. Which is your reasonable act of worship or service. So as you present your whole body that, and you serve the Lord, that's part of an expression of your worship. And, and Martha was just wired that way, wasn't she? Like some of you. You know, the church would fall on its face if it weren't for the people who serve the Lord. Who just, the, the doers, right? The, the ones that set up the chairs and haul the trailers and, and change the diapers and set this up and do that. I mean, there's so much to be done. And so I appreciate that about Martha. Last time we see her, she's complaining. You know, this is the challenge. If you're a worker, the challenge is to think everybody should be a worker just like you. And that leads you into get burned out. And then you got to check your motives on that. See if you're doing it for the right reason. You know, keep your eyes on the Lord. If you're serving, you're not serving those people. You're serving the Lord. But here's the challenge for us workers. And that's me. I have a hard time sitting down. If I know there's stuff to be done, like it's in my brain, like it's going around, like there's something to be done and I got to go do it before I can sit and relax. Anybody else like that? I just can't relax if I know there's stuff to be done. And I'm praying, Lord, you got to break me of that. Because here's what I know, and I, I usually say it like this. If your um, output is greater than your intake, then your upkeep will be your downfall. Let's go through that again. If your output is greater than your intake, then your upkeep will be your downfall. And so I appreciate Martha and her service, but there's got to be a little bit of Mary in you too. Because your service won't be as sweet unless you've spent time, oh, this is going to rhyme, at Jesus' feet. Wow. <laughs> planned that two weeks ago no but it's true isn't it unless you're receiving from the lord you know in in israel there are two bodies of water there's the jordan uh, excuse me the sea of galilee fed by the jordan and then there's the dead sea it has an inlet but no output and so those are both important taking in the, the dead sea is dead no life can live in the dead sea but the sea of galilee is thriving it's beautiful it receives and then it gives and it's healthy. And so both are important. Both are acts of worship. So there's Martha serving. Lazarus also seems to be a guest of honor. He's sitting there at the table with Jesus. They're just hanging out. Imagine the conversation. I mean, imagine people like, that have an interest in, tell us what it was like, Lazarus, coming to see him. I mean, explain, what did you experience those four days that you were in the grave? He's like, four days? It was like an instant. What are you talking about? And there he is just sitting with Jesus, alive. Just reminds me of heaven. You know, there we're just sitting with the Lord. Then Mary, verse 3, took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. She is the one who people remember for being a worshiper. And by the way, the other Gospels record that this act, that wherever the, the Gospel is preached, that this story will be told. It's so important what Mary did that day. And it's so important for us. Now, how many of you that I, that I greeted this morning, I said, smell me. 
And some of you, I was walking around, and I'm greeting people. I'm going, smell me, which is really an odd thing to say. And you looked at me very appropriately, uh, like, what are you talking about? A friend of mine, a number of months ago, gave me a little glass jar of spikenard. And so I put some on this morning. Only a couple drops. And I have some here. If you're interested after church, you come on up here. I'll let you smell it. It's very, very strong. It's made from a flowering plant that only is, uh, lives in the Himalaya mountains. So it's popular in India, China, Nepal is where you get this. So for Mary to have this, it's, that's why it's so costly. It's rare. And she's got it in an alabaster flask uh, around her neck. Now, it's quite possible that what this was was her dowry meaning her parents had given it to her. It was very valuable. So instead of, you know, we have all our money tied up in the bank or maybe you have gold Krugerrands or something like that, they would tie it up in this valuable oil. And then when she got married, she would break this flask and anoint her husband, her husband's feet with it. And she makes a conscious choice. I don't think this is impulsive. She, you know, here she comes flying in the door. She hears Jesus is in town. Martha's there cooking. Lazarus is hanging out. Mary comes busting in the door. And she takes this spikenard. It's very costly oil. Probably about 300 denarii, a year's wages. What would that be? What's an average year's salary for a a worker in Fluvanna County? I don't know. Maybe 40,000. 45000 I don't know what that would be. So go, go withdraw $45,000 from your savings account and give it all to Jesus. But, but, but we were saving that for, but, but we could use that for. It was very costly. And she anoints his feet and wipes her feet his feet with her hair. Uh, Other places, we learn it was a pound. Now, I just put on a drop. So she pours it out. Other Gospels, again, tell us she poured it on his head as well as his feet. Now, if if you thought Lazarus was going to stinketh when he come out of the grave, Jesus really going to stinketh. I mean, this is really powerful stuff. When I was in high school, and I think it was actually middle school, maybe some of you remember, it was pink polo shirts, and polo cologne. Anybody else remember that? No. Some of you are going no. Some of you are going yes. You would walk into, when I walked into my middle school, it was like the thing, polo cologne was everywhere. And so you'd walk into middle school and all you could smell was polo cologne from one end of the hallway to the next. And all the young guys were all wearing polo cologne, pink shirts, and one glove for Michael Jackson. <laughs> Strange times the 80s were. <laughs> But it smelled, you'd walk into the hallway and the whole smell of polo cologne, it's like you were getting sick. So she pours out this pound of spikenard and she doesn't get a towel. She doesn't just let it run there. She lets her hair down and she wipes his feet with, of all things, her hair. So now not only does Jesus smell, but Mary smells just like him. Now, this is important for us why Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. There should be something of Jesus' character 
in us that, that's diffused. So Mary would have that same scent as Jesus. There, there would be, they'd smell, is that Jesus or Mary? They, they smell the same. We, can't, we don't know which one it is that's coming down the, down, down the road. Until you could get a visual, you'd smell that smell way before they got there. You know, what is that smell? And I wonder, is that, is that the people that you work with, would they say, oh, she really has that, that fragrance of Christ? Now, some people are going to smell that fragrance and go, oh, that stinks. Because they don't like Christ. But other people are going to smell that and say, wow, that is lovely. That is beautiful. And there should be that same. So are you, is your life a, a fragrance that diffuses the knowledge of Christ everywhere you go? See, it's not just Sunday church. This is not about a compartmentalized life. This is not just, we do this Sunday, but the rest of the week, I live however I want. That's not Christianity. It's, it gets into your skin. It gets in the fabric of who you are. You know, as a horseshoer, we would... Uh, burn the shoes on the horse's foot. Butch will, Butch will remember this, Butch, when we, were, we went out to lunch together. So a burning foot, this is, this is exactly what you want to hear when you came to church this morning, isn't it? When you burn the, the shoe onto the foot, the smoke comes out and it smells like burning hair because the horse's foot is made of keratin and it smells just the same stuff as your hair. So it smells, and we do that all day and it gets into our clothes. And so we go out for lunch and we're standing there at the, ordering our lunch and, and we're paying for lunch and, and the woman who's at the counter starts to, starts to sniff. And she's looking around and she goes, is something burning? <laughs> and Butch and I looked at each other and said, yeah, that's us. And then she didn't know what to make of that. But again, then you take your clothes home. You get, and and it's, in, it's in the fabric of every Christianity. Christ is in the fabric of who you are. And so if you are his, then everything you do is tainted by that smell. Everything. Everything you do. And the whole, and in their case, the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Is, the, is your whole house filled with the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ? Is, do you walk into work and, and people go, wow, just you change this place. Your presence changes where we work. Good questions. Oh, we need to finish up here. Five more minutes. But, matter of fact, all of the disciples had something to say about this. But one led the way, and his name was Judas. Martha uh, was a servant. Mary was a giver. Judas was a taker. Disguised as a giver. That's the worst kind. If you're going to be a taker, be honest about it. He disguised his selfishness. He disguised his greed behind his religion, behind his discipleship. That is, uh, is very undermining. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Hey, you're wasting that. We could have used that. Judas disguising himself as the very economical, practical-minded one. What Mary did was not practical. And sometimes what you do for the Lord is not practical. We're so calculated sometimes. We're afraid to be a little bit liberal. And not, I don't mean that in the not conservative liberal. We're afraid to be extravagant. I mean, that's a, maybe that's a better word. 
Matter of fact, the Bible says, let him who gives, give with liberality. That's what I meant. If you got the gift of giving, give liberally. Mary had the gift of giving. She gave liberally. You and I, we go, well, maybe a few drops would work. Can I just give half to Jesus? And maybe that would be okay. But not, that wasn't in Mary's heart. That's not Mary's character. Mary said, if I'm going to give, I'm going to give it all. I'm going to give everything. I'm not going to do this halfway. No halfway worship. And, and that's, again, the church, I think, is, is somewhat guilty of that, of halfway worship. We want to give a little, but not so much that it actually hurts my pocketbook. And then other people look on at what you're giving and say, that's stupid. You give that? I mean, I remember when someone, a family member, saw our personal budget. We were sitting down and we had laid out our budget. And at the top of the list was giving. And this relative uh, said, you're going to give what to where? I mean, you could use that to pay off of, you could, you, you could buy a, you have a car payment with that, or you could use it for this, or you could put it away in savings, you could put it in a college fund. And, and I'm not here to tell you what to do with your money. What I'm here to say is we made a decision about giving that other people didn't understand. And they were wrong. And Judas is wrong. You see, Bethany means house of uh, mercy, I believe, is what, excuse me, house of misery. It also means poorhouse. So it's quite possible uh, that there was an almshouse, a poorhouse there in Bethany. That's why so much discussion of the poor. That's why Simon the leper lives there. He was a leper. He would have been there. And so th- this issue of the poor is right on their minds. Judas says, hey, you should have sold that gift to the poor. But what was his motive? Then he, this he said, John tells us, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and used to take what was put in it. See, for for Judas, it was about what he could get, not what he could give. And I I distinctly see this, these two types of personalities. There are some people that everything is about what they can get. Judas, these Pharisees, and I think we see these two parallels in in this passage. There are those that are in this world. Um, The guy that I apprenticed with uh, in horseshoeing said to me, Steve, get all you can every time you can. I think he was wrong too. There's some people that are just in it for themselves. It, it, church is about what you can get out of it. Church is about, you know, family is about what you can get out of it. Marriage is about what you can get out of it. Parenting is about what you can get out of it. Lord, help your kids if that's your situation. Repent and, and change that because you can't live off the reputation of your kids. It's miserable to ruin you and them. But what Jesus Christ does, you see, Jesus came to serve. Not to be served. And when a person has Christ in their lives, it changes you from a taker to a giver. Judas was still a taker. He had Satan dwelling in him, had, had, had entered his heart to betray Jesus. He was a thief. He loved money. And all he was concerned about was taking what was in the box. That's why he said this about Mary. Finally, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Um, Mary got to do something because she acted, she took advantage of an opportunity. Jesus was going to be crucified and and buried, uh, and then he was going to rise again. The women, of which which Mary was not one, when they went to the tomb, remember? They, they, They waited the Sabbath, 
And then the next morning, very early in the morning, they went to the tomb. They, were gonna, they had bought all the spices and everything to anoint his body for his death. But it was the Sabbath and they couldn't do it. So they waited and then they showed up the tomb. Jesus wasn't there. The only one who got to anoint Jesus for his burial beforehand. Now, Nicodemus and, and um, Joseph of Arimathea also contributed to that. But Mary got to do it because she did it when she had the opportunity. She didn't hold back. She didn't calculate. I don't th- do you think Mary did it? She poured it out and then she went, oh, I can't believe I did that. That was silly. That was irresponsible. Do you think she did that? You think she looked back and said, I'm so glad I did that when I had the chance. And right now, you guys have the chance to make use of every opportunity. Because once that opportunity is gone, it's gone. Whether it's an opportunity to be saved, whether it's an opportunity to, to serve. You know, some of us say, well, I'll serve then. Or when the kids get older, the dog dies, you know, whatever. That's when we'll serve. That's when I'll, I'll worship. Right now, I just don't have time. And Jesus said, hey, leave her alone. She, did, she had an opportunity to do this, and she took advantage of it. So I'm going to invite uh, Phil and the praise team up. Lots to think about today, yeah? Are you all still with me? Let's pray, and then we'll sing a closing song. Father, I pray uh, for this fellowship. If there are any Judases among us, Lord, those that just hiding selfishness behind religion. Lord, we know that today could be the day of salvation for anyone. And I pray you, you just prick people's hearts with the things that are said. And, and you know every heart that's in here. You know every life. You know every uh, compartmentalized life. You know every compromised life. You know every hypocritical life. You know my life. And we pray right now, Lord, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us, Lord, and know our thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Thank you for your word, Lord, that it challenges us. We appreciate Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, all three. We're thankful for their their testimonies, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen, amen.